Am I on now, Andy? I am. Good. I have been given an impossible task. When I looked in my records, I found I have preached something like 27 sermons on the subject of prayer, not one of which I have looked at in preparation for today, so that what is coming is fresh in what God has laid on my heart for you. I was given as a privilege uh, a foreviewing, if there is such a word, of uh, material that the Anglicans are going to use in the coming weeks and uh, coming months, in fact. And it's based around Acts 2.42. And I was given uh, a foreview of the section on prayer. And a phrase sprang out, I suppose you'd call it a strapline. I toss it to you to think about. Prayer is the life or is the breath of life of discipleship. I think that's brilliant. You want to go away and think about that. Prayer is the breath of life of discipleship. So, as I say, I can't preach 27 sermons this morning in half an hour. Miracles we believe in, but... I do want to speak to you as God has laid these things on my heart and it may come out in a very different way to what you might even be expecting. Being a good trained Baptist, they're all peas this morning. I'm going to talk about the preamble. I'm going to talk about a pattern. I'm going to talk about practice. And I've got two little subheadings there which were both peas. Place and personality and I'm going to talk about paradox. And you should be home by two o'clock, I reckon. Acts 2 spoke, and we've spoken about it as the four P, uh, as the four sort of central keywords. The teaching, Graham started us off on that. The fellowship, Arlene. John did a brilliant piece, possibly slightly provocative for some of you about the breaking of bread and my task is prayer if you look at Acts 2 can I remind you straight away because I want all that we do to be very earth can I remind you that prayer in the New Testament church had two dimensions at least And because we come out of a free church tradition, we tend to forget this. It has a liturgical dimension. Now, you've heard me say many times, Rachel and I use liturgy in our prayer time together. Set prayers. Nothing wrong with that. I'll lynch anyone who tells me differently. Think about it. That's what the early Christians did. Right? They did. Three times a day, They would go and they would pray. And it was liturgical Siddhar prayer. And that's valuable because someone has taken the trouble to think ever so carefully and spiritually about what it is we say to God. But it isn't all liturgical prayer. 
There's spontaneity, thank God. Well, we believe in that free church. Spontaneous prayer. We did a variation of that this morning in a sense. A little naughty boy at the back of my mind when I began to think about that said, the first example I could immediately come to mind, and I'm not saying it's the first in the chronology, was when they were praying their heart out passionately for Peter in prison. You remember the story? Is it Acts 10? Oh Lord, we need Peter released. And God's already set him free and he's knocking at the door and Rhoda's there. Uh, and she goes in to tell them, Peter said, oh no, he can't, we're praying about it. How can he? <laughs> Graham is absolutely right. The New Testament church has got some things we can learn profoundly, but it has also got some examples of total humanity with all its blindness and with all its limitedness. So prayer can be both liturgical and it can be spontaneous. I recommend strongly both. Not one or the other, both. And you can come and take that point up with me if you wish. That's my preamble, okay? Point two, my pattern. Not my pattern, God's pattern. I pastored a church before I retired 10 years ago in Wolverhampton. 350 members, uh, about 30% of them were, and you remember them very well, Gordon, 30% of them were Black West Indians. And they, there was a very special relationship I had with them. They'd called me because I was a missionary in, in Africa. And I got on like a house on fire, except they would constantly, every time we had prayer, whether it was open prayer or whatever, they would insist in their minds and in their tradition that we always had the Lord's Prayer. Right? Always. That was their tradition. We did come to a reasonable way of dealing with that in the end. I think I might have actually slightly compromised. Only slightly. The pattern that Jesus gave us for prayer, it's in Luke's gospel, it's in Matthew's gospel, but it's very, very, very profound. And I commend it to you uh, in terms of your own thinking about prayer. And if you want two books that pick up the theme of prayer, and I've got 17 or 18 on my bookcase, but I still don't know anything better than Philip Yancey's book on prayer, or Richard Foster's book on prayer. I'd be happy to loan them to anyone, as long as you promise to bring them back to me, because I've lost so many books loaning them to people. But there we go. The pattern of prayer is very, very clear. Here it is. This is in Matthew's. God is not only the creator of the cosmos with unimaginable power and he holds the universe in space as we talk and as we live but he's actually daddy his father it's one of the things that was picked up by the listening group wasn't he 
Abba. To a Jewish, well, a person with a Jewish background, the idea that you could talk about God as Abba was a total contradiction. God was transcendent away. The idea that God might be imminent was a very new concept to them. And the fact that you could talk to him as father was dramatic. And he is your father. Rachel reminds me of a situation that happened in the manse when we were down in Bath. I had come in from some visitation. Uh, and I was tired. I was just sitting down on the couch relaxing. And my daughter came in. This is, she'd be about 13 at the time. And she just came and sat on my knee and cuddled up with her head on my shoulder because I'm her dad, right? And that, don't be offended, is the picture that the scripture gives us of what your relationship can and indeed should be like with God. You are his child. He loves you. He wants to communicate to you and he wants you to communicate to him. And it's a wonderful pattern here. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, My kingdom come, it says in the Greek. Does it? My kingdom come? I think it says that, does it? How often I hold my hand up as a sinner. How often have I been instructing God in his all-powerfulness just because he clearly doesn't understand how to organize the universe. Let me tell you how to do this, God. And I think there may be some other sinners here too. But I point out to you, and I'm not expanding it because I've got so much other material to do. I point out to you that the pattern of prayer starts with God, not with us. Prayer is not about a Sainsbury's list, or sorry, Tesco, or Morrison's if you're slightly up market and beyond, I don't know where you go beyond that, Morrison's, wherever, wherever. Listen, I have talked and listened to so many people whose prayer life has degenerated to a simple list of requests to God. And I've been guilty of that myself. And don't think that I'm in any way suggesting God doesn't want to know what it is he want you, what he wants, what you want he, what you want him to do for you. He does. But it's about him and his purposes and his plans. And we don't always understand God's plans. More of that a little later on. It takes time and it takes faith and it takes patience. And people have said, and I thank God for 24-7 and Pete Gregg and all that's been done in that whole area of prayer uh, in the modern days. But he just points out that, you know, the little uh, acrostic, don't you? Prayer is acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving. And surprise, surprise. Not because you're last or unimportant, but the supplication we bring to God comes last. 
And when you understand who God is, frankly, I'll tell you something, it'll stop you asking some of the silly things you ask of God. Right? And we've all been guilty of asking stupid things from God. And thank God, he doesn't answer every prayer we pray. I thought I'd have at least an amen for that. Aren't you grateful that God hasn't answered every prayer you've prayed? How stupid and blind we can be sometimes. So preamble, pattern, practice. I'm going to say a lot of very practical things about prayer, and maybe you weren't expecting this, but I hope it will be helpful. Susanna Wesley, who was the mother of Methodism, the spiritual heart of Methodism, had 12 children. Well, I'm tempted to say something naughty, but leave that as it is. 12 children is 12 children. It represents a lot of hard work, I know, looking after them. And if you read the story, you get it from either John or Charles or from the other annals that are written, with these 12 children, and she had all the space, I mean, 12 children don't take long to organize, do they? Says a mere man. There's a wonderful part that tells in the story that when she wanted to pray, and she both birthed and nurtured John and Charles, who might arguably have said, be said to have been the two human agencies that stopped us going through the French Revolution or the English version of it. When she wanted to pray, she would just pull her penny over her head. And the kids knew silence. Or at least not to interfere with mum. Now, can I ask you, where's your private place? You remember Jesus said, go into a private room. You do need to be on your own to pray. Partly, we'll say a bit more about that because it's not the total truth, is it? We can pray with others as well. I have found in my life, and this is about understanding yourself, and I'm asking you to understand yourself, that I can do my best praying when I'm either ironing or, whether I'm, or when I'm cycling. I've, I've ironed in our relationship for the last 15 years because Rachel's hands are so arthritic she can't hold an iron. Now that says something about my personality. But if I've got an iron in my hand, my spirit and my mind can soar. That may not relate to you. I just offer you the question of how is it working for you? I'm on my bike twice a week. And as I cycle, and I did a good two-hour cycle on Friday, I pray. I pray. I pray out loud. It's another thing I'm going to say. If you've got a kangaroo mind like me, the only way I can concentrate is by praying out loud. If it all has to stay inside my little nutty head here, I'm off here, there, there, everywhere. But we're encouraged to pray constantly. When I finished playing football with Liverpool University, I took up refereeing because I wanted to give back something to the game that has meant and still means a lot to me. All over Nigeria, I refereed, and then I came back to my first pastorate in Bath, and I went down to Pastor Hale Baptist Church, 
And almost the first thing I did was introduce myself to the football authorities. And they were very thrilled to have, by then I was highly qualified as a referee. And refereeing vicars were unusual. And so I got all the rumbustious, violent, uh, intense games. And I loved it. I loved it. It was a wonderful sort of away from all the reality of pastoral life. I'd been down about a month when I was given the key game between Bath University and Claverton Geriatrics. Now, Claverton Geriatrics were the staff side of the university. And this was going to be a blood and thunder game. This is a true story, and it has a really important point. We'd not, I'd, not, I'd hardly blown the whistle probably gone a couple of minutes into the game, there was an almighty thudding tattle. And I heard the bones break. And I've refereed for 20 odd years and I've only ever once had this incident. And there was this lad, the left half, his name was Dave of the university, lying with a badly fractured lower leg. Someone on the side called an ambulance. The ambulance was with us in about 10 minutes. And as I gathered and knelt down by the side, he suddenly looked at me, Dave, and said, you're the pastor of Hayhill Baptist Church. Pray for me. So there, in the mud, with a lot of sweaty animals around me, I don't know whether I got it right or not, but I just prayed out loud that God would be with him, Dave, that would help him to manage the pain, that the ambulance would come quickly, and God would use this in some remarkable way in this young man's life. I went to visit him in hospital. Uh, and it was a, a very serious break. He was in for many months. And uh, he said, you don't know who I am, do you? I, I said, Dave, look, we only just met for the first time on the football field. He said, I'm actually uh, one of the uh, Christian Union representatives at Bath University. I said, okay. He said, I'm actually the uh, Christians in Sport representative. And Dave recovered fully. He went on to give pretty well 30 years of ministry to Christians in sport. And I'm not saying it was all because of that one event. But you never, ever know when you're going to get the opportunity to pray. Ray was telling me when we were on the streets yesterday with, uh, with Ian and with Mandy about a situation where he'd just been prayed. He'd prayed for someone he felt prompted to do it. I've just finished reading Russ Parker's book uh, on the Christian ministry of blessing. And when I've run through all that I need to pray for us, I cycle. I just pray blessing on the people I pass. Now, if this all seems a little bit too practical, please don't I use personal illustrations. Don't misunderstand. All I want you to think about is what's your practice of prayer like? What is your practice of prayer? This is not to make, play the guilt card, because you're all guilty, and so am I. 
but God will want to say something to you about prayer. Now, your personality will come into prayer. I've got a fascinating book stored away. It's probably up in the attic now. And I was fascinated by this because people interest me. <coughs> and if you're an introvert, you probably prefer play, praying on your own, which is interesting. If you're an extrovert, the evidence seems to be that we prefer to pray with others. Not a law, just observation. But the scripture encourages us to constantly be in prayer, individually, together, triplets, doublets, in your home group. When I go to India or Africa, uh, I, I always get fascinated by this. I know for a fact that there are thousands of South Sudanese Christians who are praying for my wife to get fully well again so that I can go out to Palabek. They communicate with me by email. And prayer isn't simply a slot machine, is it? It doesn't, well, at least if you know the secret, come and tell me differently. It doesn't work like that. It's a process. And one of the things that goes on when God is calling us to trust him with the process of prayer is that he is actually teaching us that it is about his will and his purposes, not ours. So much for what I call the practice. And if you want to talk to me about any of that, of course, I'm totally accountable for what I've said. I've got one final thing to say, one final P, and it's the paradox of prayer. When I first went down to Bath to take my first pastorate, uh, I was probably one of the only evangelical charismatic Baptist ministers in the whole association. And I used to find myself on lots of committees. <coughs> and I, I used to go in or down the A5, those of you who know the geography down there, I'll try again, down the A4 from, uh, from Bath into Bristol. And I vividly recall the first trip I ever made into a committee meeting. I was going along, I think I may have well have been praying, I hope I was, uh, and as I came uh, about six miles out of Bristol, right in the middle, there is a roundabout and a big Anglican church stuck in the middle, and it had a wonderful wayside little pulpit, which I always watched. But the first time I saw it, I came up to this roundabout, and there it was. Why pray when you can worry? And I thought, no, I'm sorry, I'll go right round the roundabout, I've read that the wrong way. I went round the roundabout, and it was. Why pray when you can worry? Now, I'm not speaking to any sinners here, am I? And I'm not a sinner in this film, oh, if only. Do you know what worry is? Worry is unconscious blasphemy. And I'm pointing a finger at myself. I didn't say that. That's quite learned theologian said that. Worry is unconscious blasphemy. Philippians 4, which was the passage Graham gave me, or was one of the passages he gave me, and I just want to finish with this. 
tells us that. Do not be anxious about anything. Anxious is a fascinating word. It occurs in one of the places in the New Testament, in 1 Peter, where it talks about God. Don't be anxious, but cast your care on him. It's the Greek word marinma. It means anything that divides the mind. Right? Now, do you recognize that it's intense personal nature for you, and I don't know, you will, quote, worry about different things to the things I worry about. Says something about you. But what it actually leads you doing is actually with a divided mind. Yes, am I the only one who understands? You know this, don't you? Yes? Some head shaking would help me to know you really understand what I'm saying. I'll tell you something. This is prophetic. Absolutely prophetic. 95% of what you worry about never, ever happens. True? True. It's true. But you worried about it. You wasted all that emotional and mental and spiritual energy. And I, please, I'm speaking about myself here. I'm not bashing you from the pulpit. Well then, what's the answer, Paul? The Holy Spirit through Paul. Don't be anxious about anything. Listen. A little phrase, and when you've preached as many years as I have, these little phrases come back to bite you. I have a little phrase which I still passionately believe. God is in the detail. Right? If God's anything at all, he's in the detail. Don't always see it easily, but he is in the detail. So anything at all you can bring to God. I love the imagery Tim, that you talked about, where you talked about bringing something and letting go of it. I'm wonderful at bringing burdens to Christ and putting them at the base of the cross. And then when I've done that, feeling very smug, and I pick them up again and carry on again. And I see I'm the only sinner here like that. Don't be anxious about anything and there are a lot of real things to be anxious about if you know you live with reality facing you whether it's health it's employment it's relationships or whatever and it can be trivial absolutely but don't be anxious about anything well how do you deal with it very simply but in everything Nothing is outside the remit of God's care. It's what you were saying. Ruth, that's exactly what you were saying earlier in the service. Nothing is impossible for God. Here it is. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition. Fascinating, he uses that construction. Prayer is the general word. Petition is the Greek word for human need. Okay? So God wants to know what it is you need. Whether it's guidance or wisdom or strength or insight. 
Here's the promise then of what to do instead of worrying. I hear my mother speaking every time I open this verse. She was a very, very gentle but very powerful woman, my mum. And I hear her saying to me, John, don't forget your pleases and your thank yous. Don't know if you had a mum like that. Very, very strong with the pleases. Please, would you? Thank yous. I hope I've learned a little bit. Do you thank God? Let me ask the question again. Do you thank God? You need to. I need to. So you bring your petitions and your prayers with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God. And then there's the lovely promise, and again, you were alluding to this, Tim, as you led us so sensitively at the beginning. Here's the promise. The peace of God will guard your hearts. If you go into the National Gallery, and I'm not a, an artist. My dad was, but I'm not. But there are two magnificent pictures, and uh, maybe Donovan has actually seen these pictures. I don't know. I've not seen them in the flesh, but I've told they were there. Two pictures, both entitled Peace. One is the classic rural idyll that you think of when you talk about peace. And the other one is like the sheer face of a mountain like Triffin or the Glidders. And the wind is blowing and you can see all the movement. And in the cleft of the rock, there is a little bird sitting on its nest, perfectly secure, singing its heart out, because it was at peace. So peace is, not the pro- peace is not the absence of problems. Peace is the presence of a person. Yeah? Not the absence of problems. Listen, if you knew some of the problems I've got, and if I knew some of the problems you've got, but it's the presence of a person and fascinatingly in the Greek it talks about this peace that transcends all understanding in other words it's way beyond your ability to describe it or explain it the peace of God shalom that peace will guard your heart it's the word that is used in, uh, in Greek language to describe the garrisoning, it's, it's like a sentry, a sentry on duty, looking out for the enemy coming, right? And the peace of God is, and I'm aware of how explosive this is as an image, the, the peace of God is that sentry on the inner part of your life that warns you when trouble's coming, right? All of the great battles of the spiritual life go on here, between the ears. Philippians knew all about it because the the theme in Philippians, and I have got to stop, mind and joy, mind. We have the mind of Christ. It's the peace of God. And it's lovely that it guards our hearts and our minds, our inner nature, our heart. 
I tell my wife I love her with all my heart. And she understands what that means. And I love you too with all my heart. And I think you know what that means. But it's the heart, but it's also the mind. Because the mind controls much more than we would ever like to think. I've gone on too long. Let me pray.